I'm going to take you first before we go to Acts chapter 19 um, up on the screen to Ephesians 1.13, a really, really great passage of Scripture. It says this in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. In the great passages, right? Absolutely perfect passage. Let me, let me take you through the flow of this and what you're seeing here. This is what we're being told. If you listen to the message of truth, that, that Jesus, God the Son, became Jesus, who died for us to take away our sin, if you hear that message of truth, and you believe that message of truth, God says you're sealed for eternity. Can God lie? No, God can't lie. God cannot lie, he's incapable of lying, and this is a promise from God. God says if you hear the message, and you believe the message, you own it, God's promise is you've got the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's there as a pledge of your inheritance. Now this is where many people struggle. Many individuals look at that and say, I'm not sure I can point to the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. What would that look like? And, and if you think you're alone in that, you're not. Many people struggle with the security of their salvation, wondering, is this real? Can, can I actually point to it? Well, this is, this is for you this morning, right? If you're struggling with that, this passage that you're going to look at in Acts chapter 19 is for you. If, if that's not the case for you, if you have no doubts whatsoever, then you take notes for the person sitting next to you, okay? All right? Just turn to them and say, this is for you, all right? I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. All right, so here's what we're going to get this morning. We're, we're going to get two angles in Acts chapter 19, we get to see a positive view, what I think is a positive view, and you get to see kind of a negative view, but we're going to jump right into the positive view first. Acts chapter 19 and verse 1, it says this, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Now, last week, if you were here, you might remember that we talked about Apollos going to Corinth. He had this letter that had been given to him. So he leaves Ephesus, and he no longer leaves Ephesus, and Paul's coming in from the north country. So Paul's, uh, Apollos is on his way out of town. Paul's on his way into town. He's making good on his promise. You saw this last week in chapter 18. He said, if God wills it, I'm going to come back to you guys. And he finds some disciples when he gets there. We're told there's about a dozen of them, according to verse 7. Now, there's some degree of controversy over the spiritual status of these individuals. Are they believers in Jesus or not? We're told that they're disciples. Well, just because someone's called a disciple doesn't actually mean that they're a believer in Jesus, that they're actually a Christian. Matter of fact, the word disciple in the Bible is the word mathetes. Maybe if you've studied the Bible, you're familiar with this, but it's the Greek word that literally means to be a pupil or a student. So it's possible to be a student of someone, a, a follower of them, and not necessarily be a believer. It's true to say that if, if you're a Christ follower, you are a disciple of Jesus. But a disciple does not always mean a Christian. And in this passage, I think it's true. The Pharisees had disciples, John the Baptist had disciples. Jesus even had disciples who were not believers. Maybe you didn't know that. Look with me on the screen, John chapter 6 and verse 66. It says, as a result of this, meaning the hard things that Jesus was saying. See, he was saying some very intense things. 
these individuals who were following him didn't like what he said. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now, the status of these individuals is not clear yet, but it's coming clear in just a few moments. Here's what is clear, a very clear teaching in the New Testament. The unmistakable truth of the Bible is that a Christ follower, a person who decides to follow Jesus, receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. At the moment that they profess Jesus as their Savior, they receive the Holy Spirit. Let let me take you back to our anchor verse again. Let's go back to Ephesians 1. It says this, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him. Meaning, there's no time gap. At the moment that you heard and you believed, you received the Holy Spirit. Do you know what that means conversely? It means those who do not have the Holy Spirit are not saved. It's a hard truth. Those who do not have the presence of God within them are not saved. Let me back that up with Scripture. Romans 8, 9 says this. Paul's writing to the church, writing to Christians. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But look at the converse. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So apparently during the conversation, Paul discerns there's something missing. There's something amiss with these dozen or so guys that he's just come across. So he begins probing. He's not just going to assume that they're Christians just because they say they're disciples. He's going to go a little bit deeper with them. He has difficulty detecting true faith. So here's what he's going to do. He dives into the very first primary level issue, the the question of whether or not they have the knowledge of truth. If you don't have the knowledge of truth, how could you possibly be a believer? So his first step of recognizing God's presence is that they need to know truth, so he asked this question in verse two. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That is a totally legit question. It's absolutely the measuring rod for whether or not someone has standing with Christ or not. So there's my question for you right now. What is the Holy Spirit doing in your life if you're a believer in Jesus that you can point to? And hear me, I'm not asking you to question your salvation. I'm not asking you to doubt the security of your salvation. I'm asking you, you, can you point to evidence in your life that shows the fruit of the Spirit at work? You're gonna get a chance to do that when we get closer to the end of this because in your notes this morning, I put four questions at the very bottom to help you gauge whether or not, and you see, you're all turning there right now. Don't do it right now, okay? Everybody wants to know, what does it say? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get there, okay? Just hold off on that for just a little bit. Scripture is, is very, very clear that if you're a believer, you're sealed, right? Let, let's go back to the anchor verse. Ephesians 1.13, having also believed, you were sealed in him. So if you heard it and you believe it, God says you're sealed. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to check yourself. Is there evidence in my life that the Spirit is at work? That's what Paul's doing with these individuals in verse 2. He's just at the very basic level with them, and their response is, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. See, they don't even know the most basic thing. This confirms for us that they're not yet Christians that they're not aware of the the arrival of the Holy Spirit means they have not even moved past the message of John the Baptist yet. They're disciples of John, as you're going to find out in just a moment. Look with me at verse three. 
And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Why ask about their baptism? Because in the Bible, a person's baptismal experience is an indicator. It's an indication of their spiritual experience. It's an indication of whether or not there's even obedience there. See, the the Bible never envisions anyone who's a believer in Jesus that's not baptized. It's not optional. Their response to the follow-up question clarifies their status. They've not heard about Jesus. They've been baptized into John. Why does he point out to them what he's about to do? He's about to remind them that John was pointing to Jesus because John was the forerunner. John the Baptist was there to announce that Jesus was coming. Go with me to verse 4. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him, meaning Jesus, who was coming after him, meaning John, that is in Jesus. See, had these individuals already believed, they'd, they'd be baptized into Jesus, right? They'd have knowledge, not into John. So here's what Paul has just learned. He's just learned that these guys are Old Testament saints, And his answer to them is, John was telling people to believe in Jesus, that he is the Messiah, but they know nothing of salvation in Jesus. Now, notice what's really significant here. I don't want this to slip past you. Do you notice that Paul is not instructing them in how to receive the Holy Spirit? It's not what he's doing for them. He asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit? But he's not instructing them in how to receive the Holy Spirit. He's pointing them to Jesus saying you've got to receive who Jesus is. See, the real deficiency is not their baptism. It's much, much more serious than that. The real deficiency is that they fail to know the Savior. They have no relationship with Jesus whatsoever. They don't even know the promise to understand that Jesus fulfilled it. Verse 5 says this, when they heard this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they're hearing, right, just like Ephesians 1. They've heard the message of truth, and when they hear it, they react to it. So Paul is teaching them the word of God, and the natural response is that they're baptized because the Bible doesn't envision anyone who's a believer in Jesus that's not baptized in Jesus. So let's just speculate for a minute. What would happen? What would happen if after hearing, after listening to the message of truth, they say, you know what, Paul, we're really good with where we're at. That's okay. You believe what you want. We're, we're not interested in that Jesus thing you're talking about. We're just going to keep doing what we do. What would be the result if after hearing there is no belief? Well, clearly, there'd be no Holy Spirit, meaning there would be no promise from God. There would be no pledge of their inheritance meaning their eternal destiny is at stake here based on how they respond. And they heard, and so they respond, and they're baptized. So verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. What I think you're seeing here is this gesture of apostolic confirmation on Paul's part by laying hands on them. There's been many attempts over 2,000 years to explain the arrival of the Holy Spirit in this way for these individuals because it looks a whole lot like Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10. And people have tried for many, many generations trying to understand what's going on here. Here's what I think is going on. I believe that God is giving them tangible proof that He has come in power And the question is answered definitively of whether or not there is a Holy Spirit. Notice as you work through the book of Acts, there is no 
actual pattern to the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you see him before a baptism, sometimes you see him at a baptism, sometimes you see him after a baptism. Acts was not intended as a doctrinal book. It was intended as a historical book. Here's what is consistent. What is consistent is that the Spirit is always part of someone coming to Christ. It's the mark of every single believer. Amen, church? Okay, it's, it's the indication of whether or not someone is a believer. So in verse 8, we get a little more material before we move over to the other angle, which is a more negative view. We see in verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, he's already made this preliminary appearance, right? We saw it in chapter 18. And they said, would you stay longer? And he said, no, I've got to go to Jerusalem and fulfill this vow. We studied that last week where Paul shaved his head. He, He took his very long hair and threw it on this burnt offering. But he's made his way back from the north, and he comes down into Ephesus, and he's reappeared. And now they are engaged with him in conversation, and we're told he's speaking out boldly. In your notes this morning, you see this this Greek word for boldly. Boldness is this trademark of Paul. It's it's actually his, his brand. Why? Because he cares enough about the mission to confront. That's who Paul is. If you haven't heard this before, hear this about confrontation. Confrontation is never fun for anyone. You may think you have individuals in your life who are really, really good at confrontation, and and you think, man, I'm really not so good at confrontation. I'm just not a confrontational person. Well, the truth is nobody likes confrontation. We all like to be liked, right? No one's really good at it, but we have to do it in certain situations. Well, you see Paul doing it here. He's speaking out very, very boldly. Why? Because he cares enough about the relationship and he cares enough about the mission in order to confront. Ultimately, you have to confront. So we get two more words from Dr. Luke. He says Paul's not only confronting and speaking out really boldly, he's also reasoning and persuading. Now, we talked about reasoning in the last couple of weeks. Reasoning is the guy who sits on the other side of the coffee table and is just having the one-on-one conversation talking with the person across the table with them in just gentle dialogue. There's no lecturing going on. That's the reasoning part, but then the persuading part gets really intense because the persuading is convincing through argument. You see those Greek words in your notes. So here's what's obvious. Paul is in the midst of an entire group of unbelievers. So picture this. He's in what we call today modern-day Turkey. He's in the Middle East, in an environment where you've got an entire group of people who are not Jesus followers, they belong to other thoughts of, uh, of religion, and he's telling them, you're wrong, Jesus is the way, Jesus came for these reasons. Do you think he's in a hostile environment? Can you picture being in the Middle East and talking boldly about Jesus and what that might mean to your life? It's no different in the first century Paul has got himself in what we might call a target-rich environment, right? But you would also say a danger-close environment because he's seen his life be at risk. He's directly challenging their religious system, and he's doing this for three months. Now, if you know anything about Paul whatsoever, you've got to believe that three months in a synagogue has got to be some kind of a record for him, right? Three months without a riot? This is unusual, 
but it doesn't last long. Go with me to the next verse, verse 9. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannius. So the predictable, the predictable happens, right? They, they begin to get hardened against the things of God. Hardening is process-driven. Somebody hears the message and they reject the message over a long period of time. Maybe you have somebody like that in your life today. You've got somebody in your life who hears it over and over and over again, and it seems like their heart is becoming harder and harder and harder. Hardening doesn't happen overnight. But when the truth is repeatedly rejected, it hardens the heart. And that's what you see going on here. There's a refusal to believe. And so Dr. Luke uses the word disobedient. How could they be disobedient? Why would he use a word like that? Because God has commanded to all people everywhere that they should believe in Jesus, a command from God. And so these individuals are refusing to believe, they're hardening their hearts, so Dr. Luke writes in there, they're disobedient to the things and they're even speaking evil of the way. I don't know if you've heard that title before. If you're a Christ follower this morning, you haven't always been called a Christian. In the ancient world, you were called people of the way. The, the title Christian came many, many years later. The people of the way is how they're identified, and these individuals begin slandering the people of the way, publicly launching a campaign. Paul says, okay, I'm done. There's nothing more I can do with you, and he leaves for this school where he begins teaching on a daily basis. Verse 10 tells us this, this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, when you see Asia, think Asia Minor, right? We're thinking the area around the Aegean Sea, the area around what we think of today as Greece and Turkey. But notice this, Paul is so effective in his work that the gospel emanates throughout the entire region. Is it fair to say that in this environment that the kingdom of darkness is under assault? It's kind of a yes or no question, all right? It, does it look like the kingdom of darkness is under assault? Yeah, it does. Paul is just being ferocious for the gospel, speaking boldly, even in hostile environments, to the degree that God is magnifying himself. Watch the next verse, verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Now, Dr. Luke describes this activity as being extraordinary, right? Seems like it's kind of an understatement to me because I've never seen somebody healed because a handkerchief was laid on them, have you? I'm guessing not. I'm guessing you've never seen an apron laid on somebody and the disease left them. Now, when they speak of apron, they're talking about Paul's tent-making apron, a big leather apron that he would hang. Somebody sneaks into his workshop and, and pulls the apron out, right? and they lay it on people and the disease leaves them. Why is Dr. Luke emphasizing these things about the diseases and the evil spirits? It's kind of a bridge to the next story. Here's the deal. Ephesus is deeply, deeply superstitious. And Ephesus is dark because of witchcraft and sorcery and the magic arts. And there's forces of evil there. And so Dr. Luke, being a doctor, carefully distinguishes for us between the diseases and the disorders of the evil spirits. You see, he breaks it down. 
He breaks it down into two categories. There's things that are a result of the fallen world that you and I live in, the, the, the diseases that go along with being in a fallen world. But then there's the things that are the disorders, the disorders that come as a result of evil spirits working. Well, the mention of the evil spirits takes us right next into the other view, the other angle of the Holy Spirit. Watch with me in verse 13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. The name of the Lord Jesus saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Exorcists were very, very common in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, you could buy an exorcist for a certain amount of money. And the more exotic the incantations that they used, the more the person was esteemed and held in high regard. So when they hear unusual names, it really piques their attention. When they begin hearing around town the name Yahshua, who is this Yahshua? And why is there such evidence that God works through this individual's name? And then they begin hearing the association of the Holy Spirit with Paul and with Jesus. And they think, I want that. We want to add that to our bag of tricks. Some exorcists come into contact with Paul and they begin hearing clearly about who this Jesus is. So these individuals are bold enough to start saying, we adjure you in the name of Paul and Jesus whom he preaches. What's going on? They're seeing the potency of Jesus' name. They're seeing the power of the Holy Spirit connected with it. And they want that. And this power of Jesus' name is something that they think they can use as a charm, as part of their, their itinerary. Dr. Polhill gives us an insight into what their thinking is like. We see this quote on the screen. Ancient magicians were syncretists and would borrow terms from any religion that sounded sufficiently strange to be deemed effective. These Jewish exorcists of Ephesus were only plying their trade. Paul's spell, quote-unquote, in Jesus' name seemed effective for him, so they gave it a try. The name of Jesus is about to explode in their hands like a grenade because they're misusing and misunderstanding what they're associated with. They're posers who think they can use the name that is above every name. Go with me to the next verse, verse 14. Seven sons of Skevia, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Not exactly what you want to hear, right? Okay? That, that is not the response you want to hear, let alone from a demon. You know this is not going to end well. I know Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Yeah, I'm thinking it's kind of creepy like that, right? Okay, I'm thinking this voice is not something you want to hear at two in the morning. The truth is some people just have to learn the hard way. And these individuals are about to learn that Jesus' name is not to be taken lightly and it's not a toy that you just pull out when you need it. So they use this incantation according to verse 13 and the incantation is this, I command you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And they never expect the response they're going to get. These wannabe exorcists are playing with things of a realm they have no understanding of. If you read the Bible very carefully, you'll see 
that every time Jesus confronts the spirit world, when he talks to a demon, the dark world, they immediately yield the turf to him, don't they? Every single time. There's no argument. They always surrender. This one is not about to yield any turf whatsoever. Why? Because Jesus is not involved here. There is no presence of the Holy Spirit. There isn't the authority to use that name. This demon does confess Jesus. Do you see that? He says, Jesus, I know. He's speaking through his victim. This word in the Greek language is genosko. Jesus, I genosko. This is a unique word in the Greek language because it says, I know him through experience, meaning I've had ancient contact with that one. This is a fallen angel, right? That's what demons are. They're fallen angels. So this one has bowed at the feet of Jesus at some point in time. He knows precisely who Jesus is. Is it not interesting to you as you read through the Bible and you think of the present-day culture that you live in that men down through the centuries still debate today the identity of Jesus, but the demons know exactly who he is? There's no question in their mind. As a matter of fact, James 2.19 is very, very clear that when the demons hear the name of Jesus, they tremble in their boots. Actually, the way the Bible says it is they shudder. The demons believe and shudder. This same demonic power knows these individuals have no power over him. All they have done is waken up a sleeping entity, and he calls them out by saying, who are you? Verse 15, so go with me to verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So the demon's attacking with violent superhuman strength. And they're beat and they're exposed and humiliated and they make an embarrassing run for the door, leaving all of their shredded clothing behind. They're fortunate that that's all that happens to them. Because when you mess with the name of Jesus, there is a severe price to be paid. Jesus' name is not to be taken lightly. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. Let's move forward in the story, verse 16. Oh, we already read that verse, didn't we? So I gotta move forward to verse 17. It says this, this became known to all both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Verse 18, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. So the news spreads quickly through Ephesus, right? When your city is rocked, the news moves very, very quickly, and the city recognized what has taken place, and they begin exalting the name of Jesus. The tense of the verbs in the Greek language indicates that they keep coming, and they keep confessing, and they keep showing that they have changed their direction. What was true for them in the first century is true for us today in 2015. Jesus is still all the power that you need. He is still the only power that you need to chase away all the evil that's in your world, all the darkness and all the sin. Jesus is that name. So verse 17 says, the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Do you know that the name of Jesus encompasses everything that is true about him? Think about what you've learned just in the last 25 minutes together. I know it's moved very, very quickly, but just think about the dozen men whom Paul just encountered. It's at the name of Jesus 
that truth and clarity is brought to them. When they hear the name of Jesus and they understand who he is, even though they've been misinformed and they don't have complete information, when they hear of Jesus, clarity and truth comes out. Think about the story that you just saw. These individuals who are caught up in sorcery and black magic, at the name of Jesus, it brings power and it frees the captives from darkness. It's at the name of Jesus that brings forgiveness of all your sin. I focus on the word all. Do you believe that this morning? Does he believe, do you, do, 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 do you believe that he forgives all your sin? Even if you think you have some secret sin that nobody else knows about, God knows. If you think you've got something that no one else knows about, God knows, and he says, I died for that too. That very thing that you hold as a secret, my son came for that. God forgives all your sins because of Jesus. No wonder the name of Jesus is being magnified in the city. When an entire community is shaken to its core, there's a reason for it. It's because they recognize who's really in control. Their world has been shaken, and they've got to do something with the information. So there's no more games. There's no confusion whatsoever. They completely understand what they're doing, and they immediately begin rejecting sin in their life. That is a mark of genuine repentance. Can you believe that an entire city full of individuals who are caught up in sorcery and witchcraft and black magic hear the name of Jesus and decide, I've got to do an about face. The name of Jesus is something special. Verse 19, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. This is a staggering amount of money. I don't know what you earn in a typical day, but a piece of silver is what was paid to someone for a one day's wage for a common laborer. So you do the math and try and figure that out, but you're looking at an enormous amount of money, 50,000 days of wages, worth of magic books, practices of the occult, all their paraphernalia, they destroy it. L let this word sink in with you, publicly. It's one thing to think you've got the secret sin under control and that you hide it. Maybe you move it under the mattress and think, I'm, I'm never going to have to deal with that again, but I don't want anyone else to know. It's another thing entirely to bring your sin out on display for all of the community and burn it in a big bonfire and say, I have turned from this. I want nothing to do with this. Ephesus has got this worldwide reputation at this period of time as being a center for magic. Many in the population had played with this. And those who are playing with black magic are changed. You've got a city that's caught up in darkness that's now magnifying Jesus. Is it safe to say you're looking at the activity of the Holy Spirit? Does, does this look like Holy Spirit-type activity? I would have to agree with you. That's absolutely what you're seeing here. Verse 20 ends it. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. See, do you see what's at the center of it all? The word of God. It's in the dominant position, right at the center of the stage. The word of God is growing mightily and prevailing because Jesus is magnified. 
So let's go back to our question. How do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? How do I know if it's present in me like I'm seeing it here? Let's go back to our anchor verse, Ephesians 1. It says this in Ephesians 1. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. That verse is telling me something it should be telling you at the same time. It's telling you do not depend upon your feelings, right? Because your feelings will betray you. Emotions come and go. Our source of authority, church, is the Word of God. His promise. And His promise is that you're saved if you say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe that He takes away your sins. God's Word is your authority. But are there some evidences? Well, this is where we're going to end today because I did put those four or five evidences in your notes and you're going to see them up on the screen as well. This is a way for you to measure yourself, not to ask you to question your salvation, right? Okay? I'm asking you to check yourself. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've already confessed that you are. If you're a believer, how do I know? How do I see the evidence? So let's look at them one at a time. Do I have an increasing passion for the things of Jesus? Do I have a greater love for God's Word? I would emphasize, is it making more sense to you? Is your knowledge of God's Word increasing in you? Are you further along today than you were a year ago? Maybe five years ago? Can you see a ramp going up? That's the Holy Spirit at work within you. Is prayer increasing in importance to you? Has it become a bigger part of your life? Here's a big one. Are you more concerned today than you used to be about those who do not know Jesus? That doesn't come from Satan. That comes from the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit at work in you. Here's a big one and the last one. Are you today experiencing a greater degree of boldness for the things of God? I mean, are you, are you involved in God talk more than you used to be? Satan's not gonna do that. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the evidences. Now, if, if those things you would look at, then you would say, I'm not sure those are true of me, or I, I, I kind of feel like I'm maybe at a plateau. I would tell you, first of all, these are the basic trademarks of a believer. So here's what I would do, and I've done this myself, and continue to pray that God would increase those attributes within you. Pray that God would make you more sensitive to the things of God, that he would increase your passion towards his word that you would become more evangelistic in your spirit. I personally, five years ago, just began praying that way. God, I don't know that I'm all that evangelistic. I, I know your word really well. I can teach your word, but I'd like you to increase the spirit of evangelism in me, meaning that I would speak more boldly, not in church, but in the coffee shops or in the garage or in the mall or in the neighborhood. Later today, when you get a chance, if you have some time, read Galatians 5.22. That'll, that'll tell you about whether or not you've got those fruits actively increasing in you. Here's what it says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, patience, self-control. Those are pretty easy to check because we know ourselves pretty well, right? Is my patience level increasing or am I just kind of stagnant? Is there a greater passion towards the things of God? Can I see the fruits of the Spirit? And, and if not, just lift them up to God and say, Father, would you increase this in me?
Can I pray for you that way right now? If, if I can, would you say yes? yes? Okay, like 10 of you, all right? Yes. The rest of you just have to listen in. No, I'll pray for all of us. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would do indeed what we have just expressed, that you would increase the, the spiritual temperature, that our fervency towards you would go off the charts. God, that we would be known in this metro area as a church of people who are increasing in our prayer life. That people would point to us and say they really have a sensitive spirit towards the things of God. That our knowledge of your word would ever be increasing. Father, that there would be a brokenness in our heart towards individuals who do not have any relationship with you. Whether they're in France or they're in Lansing that that would be reflected in our actions and the way that we support the work of the church and we support missionaries and the way we encourage each other in our walk, that we would be more bold in our witness. God, I ask that for us. I ask that for every individual in this auditorium right now, that that would be a trademark of our church. We lift it before you knowing that you can do this because your Holy Spirit is present within us. And so we just release that to you and ask that you would increase it. God, we ask this in the mighty name of the one who redeemed us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.